Hey, I'm Lynn Rogala. And I'm Allie Diliberto, and we are coming to you from the ladies' room. So we can talk about removing stupid, frustrating, and toxic shit from the world in a way that's not prim enough for the dinner table. Okay, welcome back to episode 20 of the ladies' room. Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed that you're keeping track of that. Good job. I don't normally keep track, but I just happen to know like, ooh, our next one is episode 20. And it's almost half a year. Yeah, right. And if something happens and then this is episode 21, I don't even care. Screw you guys for counting. It's episode 20. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) No, there's no way we'll record a second one between now and when. We have been... Like I was thinking, I have to still do my newsletter tonight too. And I was thinking about doing it, about like doing stuff under the wire. Like under the wire is good enough. (laughs) That's good enough right now for sure. Yeah. Uh, Eventually we'll have a few in the bag. Well, we were doing pretty well, staying a couple weeks ahead. And there were times when being a couple weeks ahead really helped us because we would have been no episode. Right. Totally. So now we're, we're we're bootstrapping and shoestringing and doing all the things, but we, episode 20, episode 20. And someday there'll be so many episodes and we'll be like on big stages and and think like, wasn't it funny that day I was standing in Bobcha's condo and you were (laughs) telling John how to eat, to cook a pizza. And it was only episode 20. Yeah. I hear I've had to tell him how to get the pizza out of the oven. That was the ridiculous (laughs) part. (laughs) I mean, it was a homemade oven involving a pizza seal and a pizza paddle, but come on. Yeah, right. I thought they were called a pizza peel. The pizza paddle thing? It's a no, pizza no, peel. I have a pizza steel. It's like this really thick. Okay, for anybody that wants to make as close to Italian pizza as you can, you need a pizza steel. They're way better than pizza stones for this because they hold so much heat that it replicates you know like you can't do it any other way so it's literally this thick piece of steel you put in the oven heat it and then you throw the pizza on it and pull it you know it cooks the crust really nice and crispy nice I've been having trouble adjusting here Bapcha has an electric stove and I have literally bought houses based on whether they had gas or electric Um, and I remember we used to love Alton Brown when he first came out with Good Eats and I remember Ooh. one time he said, Alton Brown, good eat, the good eats guy. Is. Oh, he's great. And okay. he was one time saying like, there's no difference between electric and gas. The only difference is how much you can control the gas. I'm like, dumbass, that's the difference. <laughs> how much, like, the only, and he said the same thing about gin and vodka. He's like, the only difference is the juniper berries. I'm like, yeah, that's what I don't like. So my new place has a gas oven and I've actually never preferred them because they're so messy. Like you cook one thing and then you have to take all the pieces off and like to wipe it down. I kind of hate that. But the gas um, stove top or the oven? The, the stove top. So yeah. how is the actual oven part different? I don't know. Do you have a gas or electric oven? It's probably gas. The, the oven is gas. Yeah, the oven isn't really different. The cooktop is what's different because you have total precision control. Like when I turn a gas it's true. burner off, it's off. I do like the instant gratification of like, yes, it's hot, it's yeah. ready to go. Let's it's move. on, ready to go. So I've been having trouble. Okay, so we're going to tell a little story, but just to set the tone so people don't hang up on us, one of our 10 fans. 
<laughs> um, we're going to talk about ownership culture, but first, Wait, I as, saw, promised, okay. as promised, you're doing that punchline thing again. As promised, we're going to give the penis candle update, which I don't even I'm know. I'm really worried we were going to skip it. Okay, so we moved most of our stuff. You know, now I have tusas. So now we're mostly in Salt Lake. And I... Wait, wait, uh, hold on, hold on. Did we tell the story about me sending you a penis candle? Have we told that story on the podcast? I'm pretty sure... Well, I don't know. Well, I don't... Actually, I I think you're right. We didn't... We just talked about joking because you couldn't tell me because it took like half eight years to come are you sure I didn't tell the story about John unwrapping it and how horrible no, I don't think we I don't think we did because when we did the angry feminist wielding penis candles I was googling for a penis candle or not googling <laughs> I was searching on Amazon and there was like a big <laughs> giant rainbow penis candle and when yes. I clicked on it like that was the ad like click here for penis candles so I click and it wasn't there and I was furious like don't show me the perfect rainbow penis candle if you're not going to deliver and it wasn't there and then I about a week later I searched again and I found the rainbow one and so I secretly <laughs> mailed it to you I, I don't think and we told the story it had to ship from China or something right so yeah like, whatever it took like half like it was, a year it was like, a freshly made penis yes it was, it was like hot off the press <laughs> yes freshly oh, dipped they were only all like that so <laughs> I it came when I was in no Utah, <laughs> oh, that's oh. terrible. I hope John never listens to this. He'll be so ashamed <laughs> He'll be of me. So mortified. <laughs> and so, it was because because it was directly from the manufacturer. I didn't even have precision tracking. It's like it'll rely, arrive sometime between the twenty third of this month and the fifteenth of next month. It was that kind of tracking. Yeah, terrible. So I didn't even know to give you a heads up. Hey, you have a present coming. No, I don't think we told the story. No, so we, we the story. And you kept update. teasing yeah. me like I have this great present. Do you want me just to tell you what it was? And I was like, no, I'm going to save it for a day when I really need it. Um, like I really need a good pick me up. So finally, one day I had some other stuff that I needed. John was like coming to Utah or something. So I needed him to get like, you know, whatever I shipped to Amazon out and get it all ready, whatever to come. So um, he inadvertently opens the box with the penis candle and he's like, horrified like yeah, what is this? uh I think there's something that's an accident and the best part was not only was he kind of horrified but of course I was gleefully delighted he's like there's this rainbow colored penis like a dildo <laughs> I'm like it's a penis candle yes I got it not that's a dildo it has a for. little wick on the top <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm sure he quickly wrapped it up as fast as he could and some of the packages were going back like I had like some shipped some things on accident to Montana. And so like they were getting shipped back or whatever. And um, he was like, that's going in the returns. Right. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Do not do anything to my penis scandal. So when how we moved, you? that right, was a how gift. dare you? So I hadn't <laughs> even seen it. I knew about it, but I hadn't even seen it. So but somehow all the shuffle, like, you know, must've been like another six weeks or two months. And then we're unpacking and I've unpacked the entire house. And I'm like, okay, where's my penis candle? I've unpacked every box. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> like, what did you do with it? If you left, I know we found, I know we found the lost diamond, but this is way more important than the lost diamond <laughs> right? from my wedding. I'm really excited about my diamond, <laughs> but where's my penis candle? So 
I, I, of course, like, he was like, it's in my backpack, like hidden in the very bottom. Like, you want to make sure no one ever sees it on accident. He's like, people were helping us pack the bedroom. I didn't want them to see that. I'm like, oh, good Lord. So he um, gave it to me. What if they think we're into that? (laughs) Right, into penis candles. So I took it out and I was like, okay, I got to find the perfect place for it. And I have this little like um, cabinet that my dad made me that like opens as a little door and like, I don't know, you just like put stuff in it. And um, he was like, do you like that? It's a cabinet. Like you just put things in it, but it's, it's, it's closed. And John was like, I acted like I was going to maybe put it on this like decorative thing beside the bed (laughs) and like on my dresser top. And he was just like, no, 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 that please, please, it's not that funny. cannot be on display. What if it's right by my desk, babe? So, like, I was like, maybe we could put it out like as a signal that it's time for happy playtime and light it ceremonially. And he's like, not amused, like, n- even remotely amused. And so, when I, when I light it and it drips down in a creepy way, you know, I'm ready for <laughs> you, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> So I put it in my cabinet. So I see it whenever I open it to get out like little cosmetics or whatever, but John rarely has to see it. But I think it would be really funny if I just randomly stuck it around the bedroom occasionally and saw if he, like how long it would take him to be horrified. Yeah, that's perfect. I think this is also a perfect time to say that tonight while we were making dinner, Riley said, you know, I really need to catch up on your podcast because I haven't (laughs) stayed up to date. (laughs) <laughs> dang dang so yeah so we're yep, corrupting perfect. our daughter there you go Riley you're welcome um you know be- I also go ahead I was gonna say before we talk about what we were actually going to talk about this is reminding me about the time that I found the confetti penis on the ground shall I tell about that because you definitely is- tell about that yeah so um there's a car wash right where I used to work there's a car wash literally in the same parking lot so I used to often wash my car on my way to work And I was at the vacuum center and I looked down and there was a pink confetti penis on the ground. And I was like, sure. It It was, you know, like the size of confetti. It was like a little tiny, tiny. Yeah. It was just little, like I'm proud of of you for spotting it. Well, it was pink and shiny and glinting in the sun, but also recognizing this is a penis. I should definitely capture this and do something worthy with it. (laughs) It was clearly a penis. And my first thought was, Somebody must have washed a limo after a bachelorette party last night. That was my first thought. <laughs> so I picked it up right. and I put it in the little lipstick pocket of my jeans, you know, like the in- the pocket that's inside your pocket on your right hip, you know, the little tiny pocket. Yep. And then I forgot about it. And so then I went in work, into work and I, w- I totally forgot about it. And I was talking and then I put my hands in my pocket. I was like, oh, right. I have this penis in here. So um, I was talking to one of my girlfriends and we were kind of laughing and we were joking around about how how silly it is that there's like penis shaped stuff you know what why you yes. know why is that a celebratory thing and whatever we're talking and then one of the guys at work says well you know when you see that it's kind of a big deal and she goes well sometimes and we laugh <laughs> super, super hard <laughs> so um one of the guys I worked with had this big coffee mug that had um uh, video game characters on it that I don't know which game, but like they throw balls, <laughs> not like penis balls, but like <laughs> <laughs> magic balls. And so we taped it into the hand of one of them and just like waited for him to find it. Um, and he never did for the longest time. And we thought he had because seriously, well, I mean, he just wasn't it, 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 the mug was that? huge. Like oh the mug was gosh. huge. And 
So I thought he had found it because there were two characters and I noticed the empty hand and I was like, oh, he must have found it. But then I accidentally gave it away. So then we all had a good laugh and he left it on there to all for all I know, I think it's there to this day. Like it's made it through the dishwasher and everything. (laughs) And then we had these emoji stickers. And so I put an eggplant in the hand of the other person on the same mug and just waited. Um, And this one was great because he was in my office drinking his drink. So his drink was on the edge of my desk. When he noticed it, he looked at it. He's much younger than I am. He looked at it and he blinks. And I said very proudly, you know, I just found out what that emoji means because I'm an old lady. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I was going to ask how much time do you spend on Tinder? I'm like, no time on Tinder. But I did just recently realize that that eggplant emoji is the same as the penis candle. So for or the penis sticker. So for all I know, at last I checked, both of the characters on his coffee mug have a penis in their hand. <laughs> That's fantastic. I've heard those stories work. separately, but not together. So it's even better getting yeah, to hear yeah. them together. This is the kind of, so um, this is probably a good time to mention that Ali and I are available to work with um, teams, do, especially <laughs> corporately. <laughs> we work with corporate teams and we're super professional. I mean, this is a close friend of mine. So you know that that yes. workplace people were very close friends but um, and I was just saying today like you kind of ruined most work teams for these guys probably for the rest of their life because they're never I mean the likelihood that they'll have unless they create it from what they learned the kind of team that you formed is you know I mean you could go the rest of their work life and never have the kind of team that you guys had no always yeah I that. mean I, re- I regularly told them how much I loved them and I meant it it was not sarcastic or or, you know, silly or anything. Like I really genuinely love them and watched out for them the way you do somebody that you love. So that's why we were able to play the little pranks on each other and stuff. Yeah. So that seemed like, that seemed like an appropriate time to tell the work penis story, (laughs) (laughs) which when you say, when you say the work penis story, it sounds like a horrible story, but it actually ended up being funny. (laughs) It sounds like there might be HR involved or something (laughs) terrible, right? No, there was no (laughs) HR involved. You know, one of the signs of a good prank this I heard this a long time ago and I've always taken this to heart that a successful prank the the victim quote-unquote victim or object of the prank laughs as hard as everyone else and yeah, if they true. don't then the prank was too mean it was like a mean-spirited prank that's a good yeah that's good that's a good metric right like everyone should laugh um okay this is an opportunity to tell about a prank we played on my dad, which is a perfect Wait, but example. I have a question first. What? Is it, do they have to laugh as hard at the same time or like down the road if they get it and it's as funny, is it okay? I mean, it, it should be a very short period of time. If they're not laughing within like a day, then it, the prank was probably way too mean. All right. Um, but usually you want the person to laugh as hard. So let me tell you the story about the prank we played on my dad. All of his children collaborated on this one. So um, I have a sister who's my contemporary, about my same age. And then I have a brother and sister who are much younger than I am. Um, A half brother and sister who are about 20 years younger than I am. And I don't even remember why. I think we were home for a funeral or something. So I was home and we were driving around. And in in the door of my rental car, someone found a key. I was driving all my siblings and someone found a key. And we're like, what should we do with this key? And my dad and his wife, my stepmom, have a cleaning company. And my dad takes tremendous pride in knowing by sight all of his clients' keys. 
So he has anybody who gives him a key, he keeps it on a single key ring and he knows, he knows everybody's key. He doesn't have it written down or anything. He knows everybody's wow. key. And they had my dad's keys. And so um, we said, well, let's put it on his key ring. It'll drive him crazy. And, so, and this was a slow burn joke. It took a really long time. So we put it on his key ring. We didn't say anything. And it was months. I think it was months later because the kids had to tell me because they were both still living at home. Um, and I wasn't obviously living in Michigan. And it was like maybe months later. And one night he's sitting there and he turns to my stepmom and he, he holds up this key on his ring and he says, what is this for? It's driving me crazy. And the t- <laughs> my brother and sister just pee their pants laughing. And then when they told my dad, he laughed just as hard because he'd been <laughs> pranked so successfully by his children. So that's the sign of a good prank is that the person who you prank laughs as hard as you laugh. Then that's a fun joke because they're in on it at that point. Right. And hopefully they have a good sense of humor. Right. Because yeah, that you don't joke could have driven somebody else crazy. But right, dad yeah, has a phenomenal sense of humor. Right, yeah. Like Eric and I talk about, we don't prank his mom because she just doesn't understand irony. <laughs> no, she's and way so, too literal. She's, she's a little Eastern European immigrant lady, and she's funny, but she doesn't like. She's like directly funny. She doesn't understand irony or sarcasm or dry humor at all. And sometimes she's not even. Probably most of the time that you're telling me stories that I'm laughing at. I don't even know if she knows she's being funny. Oh yeah. She's super unintentionally funny for sure. That's true. <laughs> but I think this is the first time you said Bapcha on the podcast. So I feel like. I think, did like, I say Bapcha? I you did. I and so okay, you said we're staying at Bapcha's. And so I'm like, we should definitely introduce her as we've got fat yeah. baby. We need all the characters. Yes. Bapcha is my mother-in-law. Bapcha is Polish for grandmother. She's my husband is first generation American. Both of his his parents came over from Poland as teenagers, um, and she has English as a second language, and we call her Papcha. Papcha. I think Papcha. for sure soon we should have a, a large segment of the podcast where you tell Papcha stories, and we'll have to tie that into something useful. <laughs> Papcha stories are hilarious, and I actually have a Papcha story that fits into this whole penis candle conversation but I don't okay, have her permission to tell it. Oh so, no, no. I, it was, a, right. it was nothing serious. It was a prank. It was a prank. Someone, some people at work played on her, but I wouldn't want to tell it without her saying it was okay. But yeah, she okay. does have a sense of humor. Because I'm thinking but of I don't... the internet dating thing and you should ask her and for <laughs> permission funny, about yeah. that one. I'll have to ask her, but yeah, she's great. I love her and she has let us stay. We are now like seven or eight weeks into staying at her snowbird condo while the house is being worked on and Without that generosity, I think I would be going out of my mind. Yeah, that would be hard to be so displaced. Like having your own place you can take over, family, like it really, I agree. That makes a big difference. Well, and, and not knowing when the deadline is. I thought we would be here for three or four weeks. It's now seven right. or eight weeks and we're going to be here probably another three or four weeks. So right. if we had tried to rent an Airbnb, I can't even imagine the stress. We would be moving every couple of weeks. As we right, because you wouldn't have been able to ever. Yeah, that would be really tough. Right, and thousands. So at least of you can be settled. But yeah, you're still it's displaced. It's still challenging, especially when you work from home. Yes, but anyway. Okay. So I, Wait, I, I have still three want to talk thoughts. about ownership cultures, but you had some things to say. So for everyone still so hanging first, with us through pen- penis candles, we're going to talk about ownership culture. I promise. Yes. So go with so your the first things. thing is I have uh, I didn't know that that little extra pocket was a lipstick pocket. So I've learned something good. 
That's what I, I always call it. I didn't know. I never thought of putting lipstick in there. I'm very excited. Yeah. It's just the right size and for Since we were talking about home decor, I need to tell you the story about John and his five pumpkins. So John, I bought John these five little pumpkins. I went to the store and they were like five pumpkins for two bucks. And he loves to decorate. He loves ambiance. So like I bought him these pumpkins and then I gave them to him and I have like arranged them all, you know, in a cute little pile, like on the counter or something. And then I came in and he had like put one, like everywhere, like 20 feet, not together, not in any organized way. And my mom and I were sitting there like, what was he thinking? So we put them together like in little groups. And so they looked like, you know, way better aesthetically. Like a pumpkin display. Right. And then rather than just here are some pumpkins. Right. He got up and with his morning coffee, he rearranged them and set them all apart again. And then I was like, babe, that doesn't look good. And he's like, pumpkins everywhere. I'm like, you're not putting a pumpkin over there by Godzilla. It's bad enough that I have Godzilla in the living room. No. So then he managed to put them on a one bookshelf, but like spread all apart. So I was like, okay, I can live. I can live with that. But what I found is that like every couple of days he rearranges them on the bookshelf. So like there's this really tall vase, like he must've had to get like on a ladder and like, or, you know, a chair and stand up there to put the pumpkin on the edge of this vase. I'm like, bare face. This is not, this is not what you do. What the hell? Did you get the cute Cinderella and fairy pumpkins? I only got little tiny orange pumpkins. They were super cute because we have Cinderella and fairy tale pumpkins I've seen even at Sprouts, which are like white. And then they have kind of that like horizontal yeah, I've squishy look in the past. Not round, right? Right. I do. Here's one of my true confessions. When I get Pottery Barn catalogs this time of year, I think I wish it got cold enough to decorate fallishly where I could wear like a big oversized fisherman turtleneck sweater and put pumpkins and shit all around my house. But it's, I'm it's still 98 degrees sweater <laughs> and you can't you can't decorate with pumpkins outside in tucson because the javelina eat them oh oh my gosh that reminds me fat baby tries to eat the pumpkins and i have a phenomenal video of him did i send it to you no i must have been too tired from moving but he was he like opens his mouth and tries to bite it but it, every time he can't quite get his mouth open quite wide enough and it's hilarious. It's very cute. It's like the sharks in James and the Giant Peach. Where they couldn't eat the yes. peach because it's too big. Yeah. All right. On you said you had three important conversations. I know so one there was, was something like a third. Oh, the third thing was since you introduced Bobcha as a character and we have a new character in our life as of today, I think we should introduce that. My husband decided he was going to call himself the Lizard King today. And no, no, we're not interested. We might him have because to. We reject it. We reject we it might absolutely. Have to use it to make fun of him. I mean, there's a lot of fodder there. No, I feel Lizard like Lizard King just go and like, the penis beep. candle. Like my <laughs> husband introduced <laughs> me as P and me going, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No, not. no. Right. You're challenging me technically to figure out how to bleep the podcast, which I'm I don't sorry. know how to do. You know, there's a coach whose podcast I listen to who also swears and has an explicit podcast. And I was listening to hers one time and there was a bleep on there. And I was like, what is happening? But it was somebody's <laughs> name and she was protecting their privacy because it was a clip of a coaching call. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. She's very careful about people's privacy, but why is privacy. there a bleep on this podcast? Okay, so All right. per usual, things. 
tons of nonsense in the ladies' room always. And if you don't like it, well, I don't know why the hell you're listening to this podcast. But I do <laughs> self-inflicted torture. <laughs> I do want to talk about ownership culture because on episode 19, when we were talking about non-toxic systems and using doTERRA as an example, we hinted a few times and we've hinted more than a few times on previous podcasts about this idea of ownership culture, which I think doesn't really truly exist in our current economy. And a few people are playing with it. And I want to talk and this is going to put you on the spot, I think, a lot more, although I'm sure I'll interrupt you a million times, because I always do, um, about how does an ownership culture benefit the people who would be traditionally workers, the owners, like the traditional owners of a corporation, and also the consumers. And we talked a little bit about it on the last podcast, where you talked about doTERRA pushing all of the sourcing problems as far as close to the plants as possible. And that way coming up with the best solutions. And I think that's a really great place to start. So I don't know how you want to start biting at this, but I want to make this one, now that we're done talking about penises and eggplants, let's talk about ownership <laughs> culture. Okay, so I have a question. You said, so you the traditional owners, the consumers, and then what are traditionally employees? Are those the three yeah. categories? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So who you would think of as like a worker or an employee or a contractor, however you want to like the producer and then the traditional owner and then the consumer of the final product. Okay. So, so like in I the doTERRA model, call... in the doTERRA model, it would be like the growers and the distillers and then the doTERRA owners and then me getting my bottle of lavender in the mail. Also the owners, so the growers and the distillers, but also their sales force. Yeah. Their sales and their education. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Okay. So for sake of language and lack of confusion, I always call what you call the owners. I call that the company when I'm talking okay. about this, like the business, yeah, yes. the yeah, kind of enterprise. The I talk mm-hmm. at the company usually. Yep. Yep. That makes sense because then you can extrapolate it out even to institutions like churches and governments and stuff. Right. Totally. So yeah, um, let's use the, the employees, the company and the consumer. Right. But in this model, the employees aren't really the employees, but let's just say employees, company, consumer. Well, the, the whole, um, the whole thing relies on shifting the employee model into an ownership model, which is why, you know, my whole thing is 5 billion entrepreneurs, right? Like, can we create a culture where there's so much ownership that anyone who wants it can participate that way in, in the economy? Yeah. So what does that mean to you? Like shifting to an ownership culture and we can use doTERRA as an example, if it helps, but let's just talk about what does an ownership culture even mean? Because it can mean literally owners, right. but it can also mean employees who like I've, I've been in some cultures where I would call it like a pseudo ownership culture where they talk about ownership because they want you to show up as if you own the company but you're not rewarded as if you own the company. So like, hey, you should work nights and weekends because we're all owners here. But at the end of the year, when profits are divvied up, those are not, those are divvied up among only the traditional owners and not the right. like employee owners. So what do you mean by an ownership culture? So I think I actually do think about this even differently than you do, because what you were just alluding to, I think is more of like a hybrid. And I think there's a ton of room for that in happy company culture and more like 
and how we traditionally think about business. But when I think about it, I am really more segmenting off pieces where the co- it doesn't live under the company's umbrella anymore. Um, right. Maybe that's the wrong. It doesn't live. Maybe it lives under the company's umbrella. Maybe it more is like the company has, in my mind, when I think of this, the company is like a box, right? Like the building of the company. And most companies bring all the resources they can into the into the box, into the company's building in one sense or the other. They own as much as they can. They hire as many of the leadership pieces. They want as many people working directly for them as employees as possible. But in my favorite version, though I do think there's probably you know hundreds and hundreds of hybrids and, and different ways of thinking about this, but in the way doTERRA works and in the way I've started most commonly thinking about this, um, instead of looking at how do we bring, so for example, doTERRA wanted, um, since we've been talking about that model, doTERRA wanted uh, a, a sales force that, and a leadership culture that they couldn't have hoped to afford um, when they were starting, right? Like they bought right, especially the when company. they were starting. Mm-hmm. Even today, right? I would say, I don't think you can create, I really personally don't believe you can, that a company can buy the kind of leadership that it can get um, when it gives it away. And yeah. sometimes a little bit, but even if doTERRA, so doTERRA has paid out over a half a billion dollars in commissions um, in the last, since it started, which is unbelievable all over the world. I mean, amazing. It's just an amazing figure in 14 years. Yeah. And um, most into the hands of women. Yes. Right. Like, come right. on. Which is a podcast for another day, but women are traditionally. Yes, that was the from... other podcast. I was like, I know there's other podcasts I want to talk about. That's the other yeah, one. Well, so don't we forget can't that possibly one. take, but no, um, no, that's another podcast. When we talk about ownership culture, traditionally ownership does not end up in the hands of women. And I want to rewind a second. Cause you just one, just one comment. You said the kind of ownership I was talking about when I gave the example of a company saying, Hey, we should all act like owners. I would call that a bullshit fake ownership culture because <laughs> that wasn't, I, I want to be that clear, wasn't like, really great that they wanted to extract the company wanted to extract ownership commitments, but mm. there was no sharing of, and I'm not a freaking communist. Like I'm not seized the means of production, but they like, no, you have to work late and do it for the good of the company. And then there was never like the good of the company never trickled down to the people doing that. So I, right. I don't even consider that an ownership culture. I consider that like pseudo bullshit ownership culture, like fake pretending. pretending. So anyway, and that's what yeah. most employees I think are listening for whenever corporate starts to wah, wah, wah about this stuff, Yeah, like, which is unfortunate. We're all because, in this together. Right. Because there are real, I mean, there are real hybrids. Like, like what if that actually flowed all the way through to at the end of the day, we were splitting the profit of the company in some way that was equitable that you knew you were playing for all along and how to win that wasn't connected to politics or anything else. Yeah, um, but like performance, on one, right? On the one podcast where we talked about um, the uh, the agile thing where we had the, the, the company yeah. and the customer said, okay, this is the price for 12 iterations. And then we only needed eight and the company pocketed two and the customer pocketed two, but the people pocketed nothing. 
And not necessarily that they should pocket the whole piece because there's a lot more that goes into that. They got paid for their time, whatever. But there definitely wasn't any sharing of, hey, we got this done with so much more efficiency. Rah, rah, the company gets to pocket two iterations. Isn't that amazing? But it was not, it was not shared. There wasn't even, you know, like a pizza lunch or anything like that. Like for every iteration that we pocket, you guys get to go out to lunch one time. That didn't even exist. So I would right, call and- that like a bullshit ownership culture. <laughs> Right. But even better if they had said the company will split the iterations, like you get, you know, the people working on the team get to split it and the people, the company gets to keep on also, like if they had divided it yeah. in some way, like, I think there's a lot of hybrid ideas. And I think the bigger the company, the more they'll have to look at how to hybridize in the beginning um, and look for ways to start to develop this. And then it'll have to, and then it'll, I think I do really believe it's going to be small businesses that adopt these models first and that the success will prove itself. Um, yeah. Cause it already one, is in some businesses. In that example, there was actually a disincentive for the traditional employees to be more efficient because they worked eight iterations and got 12 iterations worth of work done. And their reward for that was four more iterations on something else. Like there was no, the company got a bonus and the customer got a bonus but the employees did not receive any bonus for that additional efficiency, which is kind of bullshit. Yes. Right. It's, I mean, that's, that's the whole, right now we live typically in this um, idea where we either uh, work to make somebody else's dreams come true and we get to offload, you know, the, a lot of the mental responsibility or a lot of the risk or whatever, but, yeah there's not a lot where both of those things can happen together. And it's, it's hard to take a lot of times a traditional employee and get them to start thinking entrepreneurially. Um, you know, my, my family has a huge history of entrepreneurship. My dad had a small business that was awful. Um, my grandmother, you know, like they came typical Italian immigrants. Um, and you know, and before my grandfather died, he was a millionaire. Like, how you learn that kind of, I mean, it's amazing, right? Yeah. But that um, my husband's history and his family includes like ex-teachers and educators oh. and nobody who ever, current. ever thinks about it. Oh yeah. So your ex-husband was an entrepreneur, but your current, but your, my ex-husband forever husband. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure which one you meant. Yeah. No. So yeah, your current husband, John is, doesn't have entrepreneurship. And I've got, and kind of there's nowhere to find it in the family. And I think that yeah. really shows up in the thought process and sometimes how he thinks about risk and, you know, what's worth it and what's not. And all of that's fine, like no make wrong, but it is a really different way of thinking. And so I think it's small business owners that have to lead these revolutions. Right. And not everyone will want to be part of an ownership culture because in the example I gave, there was no share in the reward, but there was also no share in the risk. And I don't know how to square that circle, but it seemed like it would be easy to share the reward because it really literally was bonus. Yes. Um, And I think more and more, at least in the US with the next generation, like companies are going to have to start to get creative, but hopefully this whole conversation will gain enough momentum um, and the results will speak for themselves, which kinds of, kinds of, it kind of brings us back to what is the company, what do each of the players get in this, um, in this model? And yeah, so Gen Z won't put up with this. <laughs> I've been, um, I'm on social media a lot more than you are. And I've been consuming a lot of either younger millennials or older Gen Zs. And they, 
like, why does every job ad, I saw this just today, someone said, why does every job ad say we're looking for someone who goes above and beyond? If you have additional requirements, list them in the description and compensate me for them. Right. Yeah. Right. Because, because there used to be a time when a company would take care of you for life too. You know, Eric and I have talked about this where his dad worked basically the whole company, his whole life, retire with the gold watch and the pension. And Eric in kind of internalized that kind of work ethic but no place he's ever worked for has any kind, they don't have that kind of commitment to him. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's, and he shows up like, like that, right. He shows up with that level of commitment. Right. Like we're married. Isn't reciprocated. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. He's yeah. He shows up company. for a marriage and the company's like on Tinder with the eggplant <laughs> <Right>. emoji. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can we get somebody younger, candle. faster, easier to get right. in bed? Yeah. 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 Here's your parting gift. It's a penis candle. Have a great life. Right. All right. So, so yeah, doTERRA ownership culture, a lot of commissions, a lot in the hands of women. Okay. Pick up from there. Cause we scroll. Okay. So back to company as a building, instead of bringing everything into the square box, they created a game where their success was directly tied to what other people could accomplish, but they made a game that was winnable. Um, and the leadership that doTERRA has today, um, that grew along it symbiotically is absolutely amazing. And we've told, I've told stories, um, about just my level of growth that inspired, even though I had already been a successful entrepreneur, um, there like doTERRA has an amount of leadership and ownership in the company's success that exists completely outside of it, that it it interacts with, but it doesn't control. And that is super, super powerful. And it's that model and that belief in, you know, like that we create abundance, giving it away um, and creating opportunity that fill like later spilled into how we source and how we do, how doTERRA sources, how they do all kinds of other things. Yeah. And And go ahead. Sorry. If you started out saying, we're going to buy all the farms where we want to distill or do whatever, um, the more, the less, like the less doTERRA owned personally, the better, and what they, the game they play with their growers is the best quality that, you know, and they bring to it vision and commitment and education and opportunity and all, all these different things, right. As each each plant has a different requirement and a different need and a different community and all those things. Yeah. I was just about to say, I feel like this ownership conversation is a little easier to access when we talk about the growers and distillers, because on the distribution side, on the distributor side, like basically if you sign up to sell doTERRA, essentially um, their, their multi-level marketing, their direct marketing model is so different even than most other MLMs, but there's such a, like a listening of what an MLM is that it can be hard to really illustrate like how doTERRA is different. Um, And I've even heard people say like MLMs, that's not real. You don't really own your business. You're blah, 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 which I just consider it a different entrepreneurship model. Like I've heard entrepreneurs say like people who have started something new from the ground up that an MLM, you don't really own your business, but it's just like, that would be like telling a franchisee, you don't really own your business. Like, oh, I started Bob's burger stand 
but you have a McDonald's franchise. I'm a true owner and you're not, but it's just a different model of ownership. And so I would say what doTERRA has created with the way they do direct sales really is much more of an ownership model than a traditional MLM. And to say it's not really ownership, it would be like dismissing a franchisee as not truly ownership just because they didn't start with their own idea or their own whatever. It's just another way of owning a business. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because sometimes I'm so pro like direct selling and, you know, the model when it's done well that sometimes I forget like how outraged and how much emotion there can be around it. But a lot of times some some of the models legitimately are, um, not ownership models and they legitimately do exploit their like when you look at um i haven't watched it yet there's a documentary about lularoe with the leggings place you know and they they had huge inventory buy-ins and all this and most people ended up with just it was just an abusive model a few people made a lot of money and most people lost tons and tons of money and i think from the very ground up um, one of the things that doTERRA does differently is you literally don't have to buy one thing if you don't want to, like you can start a doTERRA business with $35, the end. And that's right. all. Um, and I think that right there is like, and also your investment reflects usually if you don't invest anything beyond that $35, you're unlikely to be very successful because you're probably not using the products at all. Right. Um, You're probably not personally invested that much. Yeah. And so they have like a monthly, but even the monthly requirement, you don't have to buy anything to make money, but to make serious money, you have to buy a very modest amount, like a hundred dollars worth of oils. And I'll say quite frankly, even as a consumer of oils, we use multiple hundreds of dollars in products every month. So that to me, if you're not, if you're not consuming at least a hundred dollars of doTERRA products, you're probably not using the products at all. But um, it is <laughs> yes, it is hard I to agree. distinguish like how different they are from like it like a like a Tupperware where it's straight commissions, um, you know where you just go. But in even and that at least is very straightforward, right? Like right. the there are models that push a lot of. So I I mean I, I we could go into like direct selling models. It's yeah, actually a really interesting really conversation, mm-hmm. but we're not going to do that right now because it's hard. It's actually really hard without pictures, um, but. But, but it's harder to access what, so what I was saying is it's harder to access the ownership model that doTERRA is doing when you talk about the direct sales side, but I feel like it's easy to access when you talk about the growers, the distillers. And like we talked about on the podcast last week, that came second, you know, like that, that came along. So the belief and already existed, but I want to point out that the same description that you gave of most um, network marketing is the same exact way we talked about you talked about most businesses um who want an ownership culture like they're selling some bs because they want something from you um, right and it doesn't really exist and so right they want ownership commitment without ownership reward yeah and for me even though i love that a mom can come and do network marketing like i think one of the things i like the least is now like there's this kind of culture where having um, a network marketing business is like being then it's like the new soccer mom, like every right. soccer mom mm-hmm. has one. And yeah. most people start a direct sales business because they think, um, Oh, well, Sally, you know, has one and they don't, uh, they don't really, and I could do a little bit of what Sally's doing, but they don't really look at it entrepreneurially. And I think as we create more and more business models that have symbiotic relationships and have ownership, 
we're going to start to see more and more of eval really evaluating, which will drive those models being better. Yeah, and I think even there, doTERRA has distinguished themselves because they set up um, like language around you can do this like a business or you can do it like a hobby. And they welcome the hobbyist, like the person who just is like, oh my gosh, I can't stop. I can't shut my mouth. <laughs> and I mm -hmm. don't really want to do this, but I've told enough people that I make just a little bit of money. It pays for my oils, whoopee. Um, and there's a lot of people who are perfectly happy. And doTERRA actually built a model around that. Like right. you could build there's room a pretty, for everybody. Yeah, there, you could build a pretty successful business where the bulk of the people in your business are people who are just like, I love these and I tell everyone I know. And I, I'm not interested in making this as business. It's a hobby that pays for itself. Right, because their model, their business model. So the so back to away, pulling a little bit away from doTERRA, a compensation plan that's really clean, give, allows people to play at a lot of different levels how they choose to. And I don't think doTERRA's compensation plan is perfect. If we recorded this a year ago, like you could have heard Lynn and I arguing about how um, their compensation plan is 100% pure. And I do believe that it is completely pure and straightforward. It gets messy because people are involved. And whenever, right. whether it's corporate or wherever, people are out for their own self-interest and they don't choose to care about other people, like every model, no matter how good it is, will always fall apart. Um, so of course, like, it'll always get exist everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but let's talk, let's talk about the growers and distributors, because I feel like it's much more, I agree with you that they've created an ownership culture around distri distribution, but I feel like it's much more accessible when we talk about the model they're using with growers and distillers. It's interesting because like, I don't disagree with you, but the examples are harder for me to pull from because um, each, each piece is so different, but ultimately um, creating opportunities to purchase land, creating opportunities to expand, to um, educate others, opportunities for leadership, for developing yourself within your community. Um, but let's, I mean, influence. let's actually talk. Let's actually talk about, like we have, that's why I think it's more accessible is we actually have, we've talked about some of them, but let's just break it down. Like there's the one example where, so doTERRA really doesn't like to own their own farms. They would much rather work with artisan farmers, but there's been some examples where they actually own land. And so they set up, this is one of my favorites because they involve technology in such a cool way where they purchase some land. They, and they basically set up um, homesteading. Like, do you remember how a lot of the West in the U S was settled was through homesteading? Like, Hey, if you, if you yeah. cultivate this land, if you grow trees on it or whatever, all the different kinds of homestead, we'll give it to you. So doTERRA- But I think up. that they purchase the land for this purpose, right? Right, no, In totally, this specific totally. situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're like, they go into the community and they realize like, we don't have enough owners here currently to do business the way we prefer. So we're going to purchase this land and we're going to create owners out of basically homesteaders. And so they gave people- the ability to grow crops on doTERRA owned land for a period of time and then take over the ownership versus, I think it's partly micro loans and I think it's partly um, like a homesteading model, but I think it's mostly micro loans because that's also part of their fiscal discipline. Um, but I think so in this particular example, I don't, 
So in like where we're talking about in Kenya, is that where I, I mean, is I don't Kenya, think I can never remember. I think this particular example is in Kenya and I don't think there's, what happens is as they sell their product consistently back a small piece and the agreement um, is how they earn the land until they, until they outright own it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just six of one, half a dozen of the other with a micro loan, basically. Like well, maybe, maybe, loan it's my, them maybe it's land. my nonprofit background that's yeah, maybe. caught up in that language. <laughs> they basically loan them the land and then they buy it back. But the other thing that I thought was so fascinating is they set up incentives for them to grow what doTERRA wanted. So they said, you can grow whatever you want, but we want you to grow this. And so they set up an incentive model where it's more profitable for the person to grow what doTERRA wants, but they're not forced to. And then they also um, blended training, right? Like not blended, they like tied training right into that. This is the one where they built the app where if someone, and that's too, I think they also gave them micro, maybe it's the micro loans was for the, the seed stock, the plant stock. stock. I can't remember now. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, right. Every product, every crop, every culture requires something different. So the stories get blended together pretty quickly. They can get blended together pretty quickly. So they go and they say, we really want you to grow this. Okay, great. I don't know how to grow that. Fine. Here's the app. We're going to teach you how to grow it. So not only are we going to pay you more to grow the thing we want you to grow, but we're going to teach you how to grow it to the level of quality. And they had like push notifications on this app that trained the farmers on how to grow these new. And I love that because it's like a distributed model of training that is... The people yeah, don't including have to experts somewhere. on the ground, right? Like right, the, yeah. impact, the co-impact team, like on the ground, answer questions and work with people. Um, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I worked with, um, this has nothing to do with doTERRA, but in one of my, one of my jobs as a software um, uh, VP, we worked with a nonprofit that was, um, they were working with food crops, like staple crops, like rice and wheat and um Oh, shoot. I can't think of the one that tapioca is made from. Um, I can't think. I'll think of it. But anyway, um, and they had all these partners at different levels of expertise. So they had people who were, you know, at the lowest mm-hmm. level, like basically just dirt farmers. And I don't mean that in a, in no, like no, a literally. negative <laughs> way, but like literally just like knew how to farm in the dirt. And then they had all the way up to people who are really sophisticated geneticists and um, biologists and all these people. And they built some technologies and the software my team was building was like a way of building this um, chain where somebody with a ton of expertise could string together these different pieces of um, software and then take them to the people like installed on say like an iPad and then teach them because they weren't just growing. They're actually trying to select the best varietals for growing and like hybrid them by hand, not GMO, but by hand. Um, mm-hmm. And it's totally in my space that I can't think of what um, ta- tapioca is made from. So I'll either think I was really going to say top. pudding, but I'm sorry. I have no idea. No, it's a, it's a I, I know I'm just being smart. Yeah. Alex. Um, and so they were, it was a way to distribute knowledge and technology out to like, they're basically feeding the world by sharing their knowledge and their expertise. It was really fascinating. And I feel like that was a lot of what Cassia, no, it's not Cassia. It sounds like that though. It's, um, I'm going to have to look it up while we talk. Do you need to Google this? Okay. I might have to Google it. (laughs) Keep talking. (laughs) But um, everybody, uh, like half the people listening who are really nice have already Googled it. That is good to be for how frustrating it is for you not to be able to remember it. it, it, Cassava. 
the Saba. All right. Saba. Congratulations. And, yes. I know that because I went, um, one of the things I did was some kind of conference in France where I got to sit with, it was one of the most fascinating dinners I've ever had because I plopped right down with all these crop breeders and we were drinking all kinds of wine and I was just asking them a million questions and they were telling me all these great stories. And the thing is cassava is actually really low in nutrition, but it's really easy to grow. So that's one of the tricky things too, is like the, the communities that eat cassava as a staple crop. Um, they're kind of malnourished because their staple crop is kind of crummy, but it grows really easily and it's pretty abundant. So they're not hungry. Um, so that was one of the interesting things about like, that's a tricky problem to solve. Okay, I've satisfied myself. Cassava, tapioca, tapioca <laughs> is made from cassava. But anyway, so doTERRA is encouraging not only this ownership culture, but like not only to own the land, but to like own the skills and to own the knowledge and to own the ability to grow a valuable crop. Right. So, the, I mean, I call it the game, right? Like doTERRA, whatever companies are doing this well, like they're creating a game that is rewarding enough to engage a level of growing expertise because yes. you're not just hiring it right from the beginning, but there's like a level of growing expertise that keeps the, um, it keeps expanding individuals. Like I don't, I don't just see reward connected to this, but I don't think if, I think if we don't continue or companies don't find a way to continue to expand leadership as part of this, whether it's, the expertise to grow and flourish a crop or to invest in people or whatever, um, then we're not, you know, then the games aren't, aren't rewarding enough. Like I think that continuing yeah, to evolve people's best is what has to be at the heart of these kinds of games. And it has to get very creative um, to solve different problems. Um, yeah, but I think like tears. the problems doTERRA is solving today they'll be solving a completely different problem in 10 years because the current problems don't exist anymore. And most companies stop evolving and stop solving new problems. Yeah. Cause there's tiers, right? So at the, I hate to say high and low, cause I don't see this as hierarchical, but as like the least skilled to the most skilled, you take a person who's never grown a crop before and doesn't own any land and you empower them to purchase land and to learn how to build a valuable or grow a valuable crop. The next tier is people who are already growing crops and doTERRA is educating and helping them develop skills to grow a higher quality one, either higher quality at the source of the growth, mm -hmm. or even something like, you remember when they were um, providing people with stainless steel bottles to distill into, yeah. and some people were using old um, plastic. plastic, plastic water bottles, and then their oils got rejected because the plastic leached into them a bit, right? Like, and there was no punishment. It was just like, well, I don't want to buy that. Thank you. If you want to stay in the steel bottle, there's a whole bin of them over there or they sold them however they sold. And then the levels up from that, they taught, they taught business skills and forming co-ops and how to um, increase profit by sharing resources and these other things. And then all the way up to helping a community build a whole distilling industry or revive a whole distilling industry. And not only building it, but then rewarding it too, because we have two examples Arborvitae and Green Mandarin, where someone figured out how to extract a valuable oil from a previous waste product. And they approached doTERRA okay. because they knew doTERRA would appropriately value that. And so those people were incentivized to extract value from the, val from the supply chain that 
like it took nothing away and like arborvitae is from sawdust and green mandarin oil is from the pruned green mandarins that were previously turned into compost and the sawdust and the compost are maintained at their full value but they just add an additional step to extract that oil and doTERRA completely supported that and then now this new thing where they're showing how to take care of the environment and work on the human side of the supply chain and like incentivizing that which is where it's not the condescending white savior thing like this is what we want we'll pay you more for it rather than let us come in and rescue you and all of those are like layers of skill yes agreed and one of the things that you were pointing to without saying is like the kind of creativity that this fosters is really the kind of like any model that's adopting this, um, like it fosters a level of creativity that is needed to solve the next level of problems. And unfortunately, most companies are only solving the problems that they can see from their level. And they're right. not solving the diversity of problems that they could be solving in a way that's really powerful. So, yeah, like I mean, if I had to guess, if I had to guess, the, the our black spruce distilleries use the waste material to fuel the, the fires to do the steam distilling. If I had to guess, I bet that came from the ground. I don't think that was doTERRA corporate's idea. No, it might know. have involved a, a level of collaboration and mm -hmm. connection. Like one of the things that happens when you start to grow leadership is there, there's opportunity that's fostered to travel or to interact or to become educated in a new way. And those connections um, not only like obviously and what will sound like very cheesy or trite, like they connect humanity, but they connect um, different ways of thinking and allow for a higher level of creativity. And um, they allow people to, to um, engine, um, like to innovate together. I, that's not quite yeah. what I'm, I want to say, like ingenuate together, but that's not quite obviously. <laughs> Show ingenuity. Ingenuity. <laughs> um, well, like Doug, like Douglas fur being an invasive species and in, is it Australia or New Zealand? I think it's New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Um, I doubt anybody at doTERRA corporate knew that about that problem. Right. Right. You know, Oh, Douglas fur is a super invasive species in New Zealand. I better do something about that. Right. <laughs> I don't think that was a conversation that happened in Salt Lake city or Ogden or wherever. Right. They weren't looking at how to solve it, but also um, who the people solving it creatively, like how do we resource removing these invasive, invasive species? Like they also had somewhere to go, right? Like this the yeah. company is big enough and has enough of a reputation um, to attract the kind of creativity in the marketplace um, in, what, in, the, in those solutions. And they foster and value doing things in a way that's not super easy. And so it attracts new levels of innovation. I mean, one of my favorite stories, since apparently this is mostly about telling cool stories about what happens in this for the, like in the partnerships, but the story of doTERRA last year during COVID, um, Jasmine, like incredibly, incredibly dropped in production because it's used in perfume. And so, I mean, like I get thousands and thousands of women were unemployed and people, but women, especially unemployed, um, because there's, there was no use for Jasmine and Jasmine's extremely, yeah, no scarce. Demand. there's right. 
right. There's no demand. Jasmine is extremely scarce. Um, normally it's, you can't get enough of it. And so, um, and it's super valuable, but growers were plowing under their fields because it was less expensive than picking the jasmine. Like the process of harvesting jasmine is extremely delicate and complex. Yeah. Very labor intensive. And instead, um, some, like one of the, one of the growers came to doTERRA and said, essentially like, we think that we can't, Jasmine's not an essential oil. It's only been an absolute, which is like some sciencey stuff that's not remotely important to this conversation. And I could not explain, but they said, we think we actually can make, we can figure out how to make Jasmine essential oil. And what doTERRA did is they bought it ahead of time. And I think they kept 5,000, it might be more than that, but they kept people who would, would have gone without food employed on an experiment and a hope of being able to create something new because they could, and they did it. Like they did something yeah. that's never been done in human history. Yeah. But the story of product. those women, like if there's a video of it somewhere, but the story of all the women and all the people who still got to feed their families during COVID. I mean, you and I have spent so many hours talking about the impact of what happened because America stopped shopping and, you know, the U S stopped, I mean, we didn't completely, but like the economy of the world changed because of how we were interacting with it and what we didn't need anymore. And that had a huge impact on people's lives permanently. You were talking, you're talking about Jasmine, but also last year, um, thousands of tons of potatoes, fresh salad, all these things got completely plowed under because restaurants weren't open. And so all the French fries, all the salads, because Jasmine is, is pretty similar to like lettuce that like potatoes, maybe you could store those, but it ended up just being too expensive, but lettuce doesn't store. Jasmine doesn't store. You can't store it for next year when someone wants it, like lettuce, you either eat it out or it goes in the trash. Um, right. And so that was what was happening to the Jasmine industry. And yeah. And I love that. And like, I was saying a minute ago about Douglas fir, like, they created an incentive to do the right thing because we have um, here in Tucson, we have an invasive species called buffalo grass. Um, and it's really, really bad for the desert and it creates um, terrible uh, wildfire conditions. But the only way to get people to pick it is like, hey, everyone, buffalo grass is bad. So let's go out and pick it. Yay. But um, <laughs> for Douglas fir, they created actually a demand for this invasive species that made it valuable to go and get it. So it's good for the environment and also people can get paid to do it, which, you know, win-win. And brings down the expense of what it costs just to purely, you know, uproot and do what needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Like they just asked for buffalo grass volunteers and you can imagine how well that works. We have a super, super excited about that. Huge buffalo grass problem and it's still a huge like if we could figure out buffalo grass essential oil, it'd probably go away overnight. <laughs> it's probably true. No, it's true. Okay. And they look for those opportunities. Right, right. And most, so the reason there's like so many examples that you could tell these stories for another hour is easily or like five more is that this, this is like you said, what's in it for each person, but this is what's in it for the company. It's like they get to play a bigger game they get to access solving bigger and better problems and being a bigger contribution to humanity, but they also get to be um, 
they have more, more financial opportunity yeah. and they get to be more profitable because they're moving at a pace that you couldn't move. If you had to hire, if you had a budget of a half a billion dollars to pay leadership and sales team, you literally could not accomplish what doTERRA has accomplished in the essential oiled world with education, with growing a company from zero to, you know, I don't, well, like you said, like I have no idea what the valuation of the company would be, but they're doing, you know, $2 billion a year in sales, you know, around the world. And they're opening new markets. Like they're not even remotely be get done with that growth curve. And um, that's pretty amazing what they're doing. Yeah. And yeah. that's what's in it for the company is that at the heart of this type of philosophy, the opportunity to grow and expand um, but you've got to have as an entrepreneur, some serious balls, because to take a tiny baby company, that's yours. Like when you, I mean, when you start a company from personal experience, like you feel the way about that company, the way anyone ever feels about their art or their most intimate, you know, successes or dreams or anything else. Like, it's like having a baby and taking that and going, I'm going to share this and with everyone and like whoever wants to come and play can come and play. Um, It takes some serious vision and some serious thinking that is so different than the way, I mean, I spent what, two years working in an incubator, like even in the best startups, startup cultures, like this way of thinking is almost unheard of um, because no one, like no one know, like we don't think this way, but also, the ability to make it really practical has to be created for each circumstance. I think in 10 years, like we'll have multiple models, but I think that's why some of this has to be given away and crowdsourced. Yeah. They're they're creating the model and they have a docu-series coming out about their sourcing model. And it's called the hard way. Um, About how they source frankincense and Somali. Yeah. 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 And, and I think what they get out of it not only is the growth opportunities, but I would say like a sustainable regenerating model. If you're willing to put in the work at the beginning, now people beat their door down with these innovative solutions. Like people come to them. They, it's all word of mouth. And I think it's obvious what in traditional, traditional what we would call employees get out of it. Um, but before we wrap, let's just talk a little bit about consumers. Like for me, as a consumer of doTERRA, I have off the top of my head, three oils that I wouldn't have access to if they didn't care about sustainability, Arborvitae, Douglas fir, and um, green mandarin. I mean, or frankincense even. I mean, well, gets, I mean, frankincense, like I won't have it 20 years from now, but Arborvitae, green mandarin, <laughs> and Douglas fir didn't even, didn't even exist. Yeah. Arborvitae, yeah, it's true. Th- nobody else has it. It's, it's exclusive to doTERRA because of the way they source it from this waste product, essentially. Yeah. Um, and all three of those so, are fantastic. So access to sustainability, good, good, well-rounded models is something that consumers get. But what happens is even bigger than that for a consumer. And it's why I keep saying like a small, small business owners need to become companies that operate like this because we hate big, we, a lot of us love to hate the way big business operates because big business, most big business isn't set up to touch these kinds of problems and they couldn't begin to take ownership of their supply chain and small businesses don't have the power or resources financially or entrepreneurially 
to begin to do it by themselves. And so as a customer, there's a lot of things that a customer who's operate, a customer who's part of a true value chain and not just the bullshit one, which unfortunately most of them are bullshit, but a customer who gets to be part of a company creating a real value chain, they get to turn off the constant brain work and anxiety surrounded with like all the decision-making um, mm-hmm. about how, you know, who am I screwing over to get this product? Um, how do I shop? How do I do whatever? And um, they get a chance to evolve as a consumer in a way that's amazing. Like right now. So I will say like in doTERRA's model, they've changed how I interact with healthcare, how my children interact with healthcare, how, hopefully my children's children will interact with healthcare. They've also changed how I deal with anxiety and stress and sleep and all kinds of different facets of my life. But when I joined doTERRA, they've changed my leadership on my work side of it. But as a customer, they've changed a lot. And right now they just roll the new product line. And um, uh, that's all like, it's called abode. And it's like all the house, you know, like, multi-purpose cleaner and different things like they already had multi-purpose cleaner but they started packaging in an aluminum bottle and I am not really an environmentalist one of the women on my team is like really really has influenced how I think about environmentalism because she comes at it from abundance but doTERRA said um, in one of their presentations that 75% of all aluminum in the U.S ever created is still in use. And I was like, holy shit, like that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And now when I'm like out grocery shopping, like I'm really thinking a lot about plastic and aluminum and things in a way that I never have before. And so they're maturing my knowledge base, but just because it's what they're up to. And certainly like I got exposed to that because I was at convention and whatever, but, um, hopefully as a customer, like somebody would have said that to me at some point, I don't know why that one fact, like that was something for me to galvanize around that. But I mean, I've been really, really amazed. Like, okay, I can take a dented bottle because who cares if it's aluminum and I'm just going to recycle it. Like I can buy into some of those things. So my education level and what has um, impressed me as a consumer, like my access to participate in an economy that is doing something different where I don't, have to do as much harm as I have to do, you know, like even unwittingly is really, really powerful. And that's why we need like hundreds of companies like this. So it's not leading the way only one company doing good. I like companies should do this around everything. Like we buy shoes. John and I are obsessed with shoes from a company that um, I really don't care that they make the shoes out of recycled materials. Don't hate me, but I really like recycling. Isn't my, my biggest, my big thing. I'm, I'm not like a super passionate, um, of a, I recycle, but mostly cause John makes me, um, he's the guy that recycles like the toilet paper roll. Um, but I thought he, you were going to say the toilet paper and I was going to be totally grossed out. That would be super gross. I mean, that gets recycled on its own in the process. It's okay. But, um, he, uh, I lost my thought thinking about how gross that would be. Um, I was going to say toilet paper. I used to work at a water treatment plant. So my whole brain went down the water treatment plant, flushed the toilet. What happened? Yeah, that's not recycling, but okay. (laughs) No, but it gets reused in a way that's sustainable. So um, 
it produces something at the end. There's a value chain. I don't know. But anyway, the consumers get the chance to grow mature and participate in a better way because, oh, I was talking about how my shoes I'm obsessed with. But yeah. I do really care that my shoes are not made with um, with uh, child labor. And John loves, a, used to love Adidas. And finally, I found a shoe company that I knew wasn't making shoes in a sweatshop, but also like that they were up to bigger, better things in the world. And I don't know a lot about this company or their model, but I mean, I love their shoes and I do really care that when I purchased them, I had to put a lot of work into, you know, into that. And Finding like, it. yeah. And having and it also be good I for your foot. I don't want to do that ever again. And, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, they made a joke about that on 30 Rock where she bought these shoes and she said, for every pair you buy, they give a pair to the children who are forced to make them all day. And then he kind of gives her a look and she's like, well, it's not great. Because that's most of what the green. That's most type. of what the models are. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's just, it's kind of just a little bit of uh, like gilding on a shitty, like a gilded piece of poop. Right. Um, right, like the, right. The totally fundamental like, business model is gross, and then they try to like dress it up and put a little bow on it. Right, like we're raping and pillaging both the earth and the people who are growing cocoa, co- co- whatever. Like, however, we get chocolate. Like, right. I didn't even know this was a thing until last year. And but, oh I mean, yeah, it's, chocolate it's slavery. Horrific. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's horrific. And every time I go to buy chocolate, but I would love companies that like. We do love companies that really embrace this, but it's so hard that I think the average consumer who can vote with our dollars doesn't have the bandwidth. And so yeah. we need, again, to participate in better models, which yeah. require the full circle. It's like, so being a it's consumer like Hugh, is only part of it. It's like Hugh Jackman with the Laughing Man coffee, which I mostly switched over to before I quit drinking coffee because I can't deal with the caffeine. Like he was, he met someone and he was so moved by the story. And there's like a whole movie you can watch about it that he became passionate just as like a side project, because obviously he still acts for a living of fair trade <laughs> coffee. Um, yeah. And you know, that's a big, all these luxuries, our luxuries tend to be not great for the environment and for the humans involved in producing them for us as Americans. I mean, as pretty much anybody right. in the Western world. Yeah. And there's so much conversation that's so negative that like the only way to do this is basically burn everything to the ground. Um, yeah. And I really, in my soul, like I really believe in abundance and human ingenuity and that if we invest in people as this pure resource of goodness and all these different things that we can cultivate within humanity and we start doing that you know, all the way through, we will be able to solve the problems of our lifetimes and our children will solve the problems of theirs. Um, and what's hard, one of the things that's hard about being alive today is we're bombarded so often and there's so much greenwashing. I mean, you and I have spent hours and hours and hours talking about how do you get people to believe what's true and it's actually true because you can make a lie with media look as true as anything else. Yeah. And like the other side of what we get out of it for as wealthy consumers is maybe we can avoid the guillotine <laughs> in, a, in like a very <laughs> real way, right? Like be part of the solution or lose your head. I mean, that like history repeats that story a lot and it doesn't have to be that. I mean, I say it a little tongue in cheek, but not, um, it doesn't have to be that way. So 
yeah, this was an excellent yeah. conversation. I think it's time to wrap it up and right. uh, pick it up next time. Maybe next time we could talk. Who knows? We'll talk Let's about, talk about women next we'll time. Women. I really want to talk Who about knows? Yeah. I really want yeah. to talk about the women conversation because it's fascinating, but you have to pull up a lot of your facts. Yes. Time to brush up on all the things that are. I'll in your try head to somewhere. do it while I'm in my little non-computer house. Okay, right, I'll try so we'll to leave it here. I'll try to get you going on that. Okay, I'll galvanize we'll, you. Perfect. We'll see you next time <laughs> then in the ladies' room. And the ladies, ciao. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to catch us in the ladies' room. You can also find Lynn at A Spacious Life on Facebook, Instagram, and in Clubhouse. And find Allie at 5 Billion Entrepreneurs on LinkedIn and Instagram. Mm-hmm.